Hey there, welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. This podcast is all about providing clarity, insight, and encouragement for life and mission. And my name is Aaron Sandemeyer, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we have the phenomenal opportunity to have with us back on the podcast, Anna Hampton. For those who listen into the podcast, we interviewed her um, a few months back on Facing Danger. Today, we're going to talk about her new book, Facing Fear, The Journey to Mature Courage, in risk and persecution. Just a phenomenal, insightful um, book that she has written, put together uh, on a subject that is close to my heart. And it was just a, a valuable time to learn from her, her expertise, and her leadership. When you look across the the work that's being done, uh, Anna is, is definitely a leader um, when it comes to providing materials, providing resources, and um, engaging in this topic of of facing fear and uh, facing danger and what that means for global workers and honestly for all um, Christians across uh, across the world. And so we talk about uh, having an anti-fragile faith. We talk about the definitions of what it is, um, mature mature courage is, just a a valuable time with her, always fun to learn from her and to really appreciate her, her willingness to be on the podcast. Do want to ask you to continue to send in your questions for Back Channel with Foth. For those who listen to the podcast, you know that's a time where we sit down with Dick Foth and we answer uh, listeners' questions that they send in, and it's always a fun time to to, to spend with Dick. And uh, when we when we get through the summer, we'll be launching some uh, new episodes. Looking forward to that in the fall. Um, got a great lineup. Just had an opportunity uh, to hear Tim Elmore speak this summer, and um, he's going to be on the podcast talking about a different kind of diversity, and that's generational diversity. And looking forward to that. It'd be a fun time. And uh, yeah, if you do not subscribe to the podcast, I encourage you to subscribe because I know the ones I subscribe to are the ones I listen to. Well, there's no time better than now to get started. So here we go. Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. Excited to be here again today with someone who's already been on the podcast, Anna Hampton. Anna, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Aaron. It's good to be with you. Anna, for those who had not listened to the first episode we did together, would you just take a few minutes to share a little bit about yourself before we jump into an exciting subject of facing fear? (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, when my husband and I married shortly after that, we headed to Afghanistan and we were there for about a decade and we were there kind of at the tail end of the first Taliban government. And then um, after that, we transitioned into a different ministry. We're with Barnabas International, and we've been in member care, pastoral care since 2010 with with Barnabas. And we spent five years in Turkey, basing in Turkey to just provide care across the Central Asia, Middle East region. And during that time is when I wrote Facing Danger, and and now um, I wrote the sequel, (laughs) Facing Fear. Yeah, Yeah. it's exciting. And your passion for this subject. So I, I said I was going to stick to the, su- the questions, and here I am veering <laughs> off in the beginning. So I'll just this one, and a promise from there, I'll stick to them. But no worries. Your, passion, your passion for this subject. Um, I think part of that comes from I felt most of my overseas life unpastored, hmm. and I'm I'm not blaming those people at home because how could you when you're caught up in the ministry and I'm an American, so in American church ministry. And then when you haven't been in those dangerous places. So I felt that. And then I had these questions that were unsatisfactorily answered, but I want to be grounded in the word. And so what does that look like? So I think that's what's driven me to write those two books. And I'll just let you know, I didn't know I was writing a series. Um, (laughs) 
until I turned in the manuscript for this one. And I have a yeah. third one that I'm working on now. But wow. at any rate, it's that passion to find those answers to my own personal questions. Excellent. Or back to the <laughs> questions I sent you ahead of time. So 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 you think about the word persecution. What comes to mind and and how do you frame this word? Because we're talking about, yeah, this idea of persecution, sharing the gospel where it's in difficult places. So when you think of persecution, what do you think of? I think when I think of persecution, what comes to mind is the faces or names of people throughout 2000 years of church history. And then, of course, the prophets and people before them. So for me, what comes to mind is people, stories. Hmm. Um, but as I delved into the definition, I found out, oh, there's not agreement on what it is. <laughs> and so I don't want to go academic um, for this podcast. And so people can see the three different definitions in the book. Uh, two of them are in the footnotes. because That's for the people that really want to go detailed. Sure. Um, but Charles Teason wrote a definition that incorporated theology, sociology, psychology, and, and so forth. He combined this, and he explains all that in his book, which is free, by the way, online, and I can send that to you for the notes. Um, and I think I also spent time in the Greek trying to figure out what does the Bible actually say is persecution. So in contexts of the early church, mm. when something happened because they were proclaiming the Messiah had come, what mm. was the response? So mm. it's not an exhaustive study because this is not an academic book. Sure. Um, and so there's this chart on pages. I wrote down what pages it is, 16 to 19 and facing fear, at least in the print version of all the words I could find um, in the Greek that are related to people's resp negative responses to when Christ was proclaimed. Mm. And so I think those words are instructive as to what persecution is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And in your experiences, you said that there's many definitions. Is this something that you see us grappling with or you think people having many definitions adds confusion to the discussion or in your personal experience? Well, I think I'm uncomfortable when I'll have somebody in my home culture say, oh, well, you know, we're having persecution here. And I'm not comfortable with the way people just define it without thinking it through and think any opposition is persecution. And I, but I think it should be instructive to us lay people that the academics or the people doing research, that's Open Doors definition. And we have the Center for the Study of Global Christianity that do research on this. And so to find out that there's a difference of how they're defining and counting the numbers, that should be instructive to us that it's not so simple. Hmm. But yet on the other hand, we know that when people die in situations where they're dying because they were there for gospel witness, I mean, I think most of us put that in the category of persecution. For sure. For sure. In this idea, you talk about this idea of mature courage and proclaiming and living out the gospel. What does that look like in the world today? You talked about the early days of the church. Um, mm -hmm. What does that look like in the world we live in today? Mature courage and proclaiming the gospel. I think I would say that it does not. First, what does it not mean? It does not mean that you never have fear and that you never have fear, even as you have 20, 30 years of experience in the field. Hmm. I think fear is normal and natural, but we have to deal with it. So we can call that fear management. Um, mature courage does not look like melting into wax, having no firmness to us. So that's what it doesn't look like. And so when fear comes over me, 
mature courage is how I handle that. Mm. Right. And the more times we face our fear and then choose righteousness to move forward, despite our fear, and we keep doing that with never giving up, that's mature courage. Wow. And you shared your experience. You've lived as a global worker for a long period of time. Is that how do how do we walk along some somebody to develop that mature courage? Is that a fair question? Yeah, because I think it's discipleship. And anybody who's familiar with facing danger knows that we have those 12 risk myths. So I react to pithy, simple answers in the face of whether it's risk or fear. So I react to that. Like, I just don't, I don't think that's helpful. Hmm. I think fear has an object. So when I sit with a worker, I'll say, what's, what do you fear? And they'll say something. Let's say death, because that's like the big one. But Actually, I think there's a core fear under that. Like, I'm not convinced that death is always the worst thing because I think certain forms of torture um, and certain forms of persecution are worse than death in some ways. I don't say that lightly. Yeah. But what's the fear of if somebody dies? What's the fear under that? And so I will keep pushing gently and compassionately to find out, help to help them find out what their core fear is. Hmm. Right. And I think we can do that in member care um, so that people can really wrestle when they wrestle with the core and their worst fear. They're actually able to handle those easier kind of lighter fears or, you know, what what is not a dread fear. Yeah. And it's amazing. You know, I think we've come such a long way um, when it when it comes to training global workers in our understanding. Uh, We went to Burkina Faso in 2004. We didn't have any of these discussions. Um, and you know what I mean? And that's not to look back and complain. That's not look to look back and criticize. That's just a reality. I didn't consider yeah. any of this. You know what I mean? Um, and, you know, you battle and hit and, yeah, you run up against walls and run up against walls and you realize, well, wow, some of these conversations would be really valuable to have before you get into the middle of it all. So, uh, yeah, anyway, that's uh, just a little context for me. So this idea you shared, and I've actually – Quoted you, but used um, used your your quote. This idea of going from being a sheep among sheep to a sheep among wolves, and that just that that way that that's shared really helps understand, uh, help me understand what we're kind of talking about. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I think I remember when I first went to Afghanistan and like. <gasps> there's people that want to kill me. They shouldn't want to kill me. I'm here to help. (laughs) Some of that is American arrogance. And it's not just Americans that have that. We all have our pride in our nation. And I've learned that. I only criticize Americans because I am one. That's right. Um, But we we need to understand that there is personally targeted evil out there. There are evildoers that want to do evil simply because that's what they want to do. And so I think that we do not, part of our training with people will help them to be more resilient is to understand, have a theology of evil, and that not to be naive that there is personally targeted evil, no matter who we are and what we're doing there, right? And so we we can we need to study the place we're going and we do this in member care we learn about the place we're going to visit what's impacting those workers what is the nation's problems historically because some of those ethnic strife you know it it goes back 500 years or 1000 years right what is the evil that's happening there what are the strongholds and to understand that it does 
impact us. So there's a reality of evil, a reality of violence, and to face it. That's why these yeah. books are facing, because yeah. when we can see it and name it, that's like, I've heard from clin clinicians, that's like 60% of the work. I mean, you're a clinician, so sure. is that right? Sure. Um, uh, for sure. If you can face it and recognize it. Um, denial is, you know, my mom says denial is a, a long river um, in Africa. It's not a, it's not a, re, you know, it's not a reality, but yes, facing is a, is for sure. Yeah. Naming the evil and then preparing for that because the enemy will use that to get at us and wear us down. And so that being a, sh realizing we're sheep among wolves, um, that's called that's called being shrewd as a serpent. Hmm. And that's what the book specifically addresses, not just some theological concept of being shrewd, but what are the specific skills we need to be shrewd? And that's that uh, middle part three section. Yeah. You know, I think one of the, as I've read the book and have thought about this, that sh mindset shift, I think for me, was a difficult one. Um, because I had grown up and I'm here in my hometown, Wally Ford, West Virginia, sheep among sheep. Um, you know, it's a it's a small town and making that shift that, oh, my, I'm in a place now that I'm a target just because of who I am, what I believe in, uh, maybe the way I look, maybe the way I dress, whatever the reasons it it, it was it was shocking to me because I had never been a target. Right. And so I think just having conversations around this idea. And yeah. being able to now it's to be very honest with you, it was unsettling because I had never been I had never had somebody dislike me just because I don't, you know, for no reason. I, I like people to like me. Um, and so it was unsettling. So I, I think I wanted to avoid it. I didn't want to even consider it that, you know, somehow I could be different. You know, I was going to be the only right. unique one that uni was universally <laughs> liked around the world, which is obviously <laughs> stupidity. But that's somewhat what I convinced myself. Um, yeah. but to have a conversation and like you said, it helps me to have the conversation to say sheep among sheep, sheep among wolves. And, um, yeah, it was just valuable. And, uh, yeah, yeah. it's, it's a challenge for sure. So the yeah. idea of collateral violence, um, and what does collateral violence have to, how does that impact global workers, uh, in the world we live in today? Yeah, I, I mean, I think a big one is health. Like we don't understand that we can, our health can become broken in that place that we're serving because because of pollution. Maybe that nation doesn't follow laws and there's chemical dumping in the water. I mean, all sorts of things happen. So it's that, it's the collateral, uh, what we pay that we don't know we're going to pay when we go to that place. So I made a list there of just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's the bystander violence, but yeah. so many coups that are happening where people are oh, Central Asia and Africa right now. Yeah. It's like shocking to watch the gang yeah. or cartel violence, um, the reelection violence. I had somebody in Kenya and a Kenyan reach out to me and say, I'm really worried about the next election. And the church doesn't seem to care about what could happen. And so walking through that believer uh, through how to respond to that, um, and just the proxy wars that are waging, yeah. right? For sure. I, I, you know, when I started my doctoral work, when you talked about health health concerns, I wanted to do a study. Um, it was non-scientific, my observations, but the rate of mm -hmm. cancer amongst um, global workers yeah. to me is, is uncanny. Um, now, yes. I'm a scientist by, you know, by mind and thinking. 
uh, there wasn't enough literature. You couldn't do a you couldn't do a research review. I, they it was shot down by the university. But I do. There's something to be said. Or maybe it, maybe it's just a confirmation bias for me. But when you look around, to me, it does seem to, that there's a higher level of cancer, and yeah. and that could be from lack of healthcare, multiple reasons. But it goes back to that point of of health. Um, yeah. So, so how do you navigate from a member care? Uh, perspective, how do you navigate a conversation around this collateral violence? Do you walk people through before, when they're in, in their country, the possibilities, or how do you help them navigate? Because this is this could be a weighty thing when you look at all, all the possibilities. Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think from a member care perspective, it would be expectations. What are your expectations? And that okay. this can happen. And Paul wrote it in Romans 8. Um, and I I put that section in there that, well, maybe that's why he just used candinos, this one Greek word on danger. Like, I'm just putting that theological theory out there to see what other people think. But I'm like, this seems to make sense when we're assessing the risk level in different categories. And I like science and math and charts, as you can tell. Yeah. Um, But I think if people can understand and we just walked an entire team through this. Here's the here's the here's what you're facing if you do this. And they were exposing a sex trafficking ring. Well, when you mess around with mafia and cartel, gang cartels, where you have you have the evil people and then you have police and taxi drivers and government officials yeah. all colluding together, you're gonna have collateral violence and you need to face that. That's you're not necessarily proclaiming Christ, right? But you are by trying to rescue people from sex trafficking. And so walking that team through, what are the possibilities, the evil dangers that could happen to you for messing around with with wicked people? We have to be honest about that. And so walking people through that, what are your expectations? What are you feeling called to? What are you willing to risk? Um, That's all part of our calling. And so that's why we say calling is not a one size, one time fits all event. We have to walk that through depending on which risk we're facing. Yeah. And do you do that as like, as a team approach? Um, the idea that maybe you said it's, so does the team talk about that where they fit on that spectrum or where, what they're, and then, yeah. Do you have any, could you share your thoughts on that? Well, yeah. I mean, we, we, my husband and I, we will help a team work through the risk assessment and what is the calling and where's the Holy Spirit. So it's a combination of both practical and theological. When in the the case I just referenced, it was an entire team deciding together what to do because they were all at risk. But when it's just one unit, a single or a family, and it's something that's only impacting them, then of course, we're just talking with them, right? So sure. it depends on the situation. Yeah. But again, it's the expectations of what they think could happen and the calling of what God's calling them to yeah. move into it or to go to safety, right? Yeah. And yeah. so when we do that, we can have more resilience when we walk into danger. Yeah. We lived through two, at least two coups in Madagascar. And um, I remember those team meetings where you sit and discussing and, you know, our kids at that time were small, they didn't run real fast. And, uh, <laughs> and so it was the team, but you know, we sat down as a team and discussed and probably the team could have stayed. Some of them could have stayed longer, but in honestly, I think in support of us saying, you know what, it's not, it's not the best for, for you to be here this time with young kids. We're going to make this decision to, to go out together for a time and then we'll come back in. And we had the support of the, the organization we worked mm-hmm. with locally. They wanted us out because they said, it's more pressure having you here yeah. Because we're concerned about you, then we would rather you step away so we can concentrate on our family and our 
or who we're working with rather than concerned about, you know, we were the Vaza or the foreigners. Um, and so, but anyway, that it really struck me as we had just been talking, just that idea and walk, walking through that. And the, that I remember it today, the team saying, you know what, this is what's not necessarily best for us personally, but this is what's best for us as a team and for your family. Cause your kids don't run real fast at, you know, at four and five um, or four. Right. And so it made an impact on us. So appreciate yeah. the, the, the guidance on, on conversation. You yeah. talk also a little bit about the importance of grammar when it comes to fear <laughs> and courage and um, the importance. Now I was not in a uh, great in English. Um, my teacher, Miss Collette, I had, uh, I had lunch detention, <laughs> I think every day in seventh grade. So anyway, but we won't go to that grammar part of it, but grammar, why, what, what are some reasons you highlighted that? Well, I just have to say, man, there's hope for people when you say that. <laughs> Look at you, Mr. <laughs> Doctor. Okay. Um, I think, again, it's like when there's simplistic preaching about a topic. Okay. So I'll give you the example. Don't fear. Just have faith. Right? Well, I can't not feel fear when I'm in a situation of danger because I sure. feel fear. I'm like well aware. I have faith. So we have to say, well, what does the Hebrew say? What does the Greek say? And anybody can do this. Go to blueletterbible.org. It's free around the world. You can type the verse in and then click on it. It'll tell you what grammar, what gram, what grammar tense, verb tense, what is that noun, adjective. It'll tell you what it is, right? So here's what's fascinating. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the majority of the time when the English says don't fear, it's it's being stated most of the time to the people in an imperfect verb tense, okay? Hmm. Which means the action isn't completed and we get to choose how we want to respond when the fear comes over us. And it's also an action verb. It's, it's not saying don't feel fear, which is, that's a passive thing. I can't tell, I can't stop my, my neurological system from reacting. My body and the neurons, the I mean, I, I wrote it in the book cause I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. Like, you know, the, the, the hormones that are released sure. and all of that sure. when fear comes, right? For sure. But it's saying in an imperfect action verb, don't do the action of fear. That's what it's mm -hmm. saying in Hebrew. The only time it's an imperative command form is when it's said to the leader, Joshua or Moses, it, God says to them, do not do the action of fear because they're the leader. Hmm. But when it's to the people, it's an imperfect action verb. It's a, hmm. when it, when you, when it comes over, you God is saying, don't do that. I wish you wouldn't. Hmm. I want you to choose. I want you to choose to not act in fear, which is to tremble and turn into wax. Instead, I want you to choose courage. Hmm. Now in the Greek new Testament, I haven't done a completely exhaustive study. So this is a worthwhile thing to do as a team. But I could only find four places in the Greek imperative verb that says don't fear. And it was only Jesus that said it. Wow. Okay. And Jesus said, and I, I wrote this out here. He says, don't fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Fear him who is able to destroy soul and body in hell. So he's telling us to care more about God's power than man's power, human's power. And he says, don't fear. You're more valuable than sparrows. So we matter to God, even yeah. when we don't feel like we do. And he says, don't fear, because from now on, you'll be catching humans, man. Yeah. You'll be catching men. Our work is significant. 
And then he says in Revelation, um, don't fear what you're about to suffer. So we're mm. part of this body of Christ when we do suffer, right? Yeah, Those are the four places. So the Bible does change, but it's changing in the person of Jesus from the Hebrew to the Greek. Yeah. Um, and I just would encourage preachers and teachers not to be simplistic in their teaching about fear, to yeah. look at the grammar and see what it says. Yeah. Um, one more thing to follow up with that, that a Hebrew scholar said, he said, actually, it's almost more important for you to emphasize which no is being used because Hebrew and hmm. Greek have two different no's. Hmm. And you can also look this up in blueletterbible.org. There's a permanent no. So just go to the Ten Commandments in Exodus. That no there is never do these things. Like it's yeah. a, an imperative command. Yeah. And we have the same similar type of no in Greek. And then there's a no that's like, when this happens, I wish you would not do this. So it's not a permanent no, it's a, I wish you wouldn't. Like you tell your child, I wish you would not cross the street without looking both ways, right? So it's a volitional um, no. That's probably not the best way to say it in Hebrew. But anyways, um, you have to look at which no in the Hebrew and the Greek. And that will give you some instruction about what God thinks about that. Yeah, fascinating. So you're, what you're talking about is the idea of emotions. Like if I see a, I'm in Kenya and I see a leopard or a lion, there is natural emotions, right? They come over, you know, I mean, that, that, and, you know, and I can't necessarily control that fear. Um, I control how I respond and how I mm -hmm. process. So feelings are processed emotions. Um, so that goes in line with that. And this, the, the response that we have, I think, you know, when we lived in Burkina, the way I think my understanding, and you've helped me with my understanding of fear. Um, minors. So when we lived there, they would say palutaramam, which means uh, the malaria has me, meaning that it's this idea that I can't control it. The malaria comes and takes me versus in America, we would say I have malaria. And it's it, it sounds like a small difference, but it's actually large because the way they they feel like they had no control, it would come take them and they couldn't get better until, you know, malaria decided it didn't want them anymore and then they would get better. Mm -hmm. But it's this idea with fear, right? It's this idea of our worldview that fear is not something that comes in and takes me. I can choose courage because of Christ. And um, yeah, I think it's, it's just helped me. And I really appreciate your helping me understand and giving me tools and language to process and thank myself. And that's what well, I loved, loved about the book. Loved thank about you. The book. I, I want to just emphasize that courage when you're not, when you say, I don't want to choose fear. I want to choose courage. It's, it doesn't look glamorous. It's rarely the big action, Sure. right? It's a thousand small decisions and rarely do we get the one big one that hits the media. Yeah. But here's the deal. Courage is instead of sitting in my bed and crying and being afraid, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go do the dishes. I'm going to do the laundry. It means I'm doing the next thing in my day. And that doesn't look huge, but that is righteousness. And that's yeah. the opposite of being paralyzed. So I just want to emphasize that to people is just do the next thing. Lord, what do you have for me next? Okay, I got to do this. I got to respond to this email. I'm not going to sit here paralyzed and, and focusing on the fear. Yeah. And as, as you well know, most of the life of global workers is not glamorous. It's not, uh, it's not the glamorous stuff that newsletters and stories are written about. It is a lot of doing the laundry, having water, having electricity, having internet that works, all those things. And those are the next, the, uh, the next thing I need yeah. to do to get me to where, where I need to get to. You also talk about how Jesus reorders our fears. Could you share just a, a minute or two about that? Sure. Yeah, very briefly. Exactly. I use Mark 4, 
35 to 40, the story of the, the boat on the storm where it was about to go down and Jesus yeah. was asleep. And people will interpret this story differently, that he was rebuking them for their fear. I don't read it that way. Okay. Um, I read it. If you look at the fear words in those six verses, it's different fear words. But in the English, it's like all the same. Mm. And so he, they're like afraid because Jesus calmed the water. And Jesus says, why are you timid? And then they were even megaphobos. That's the first time it's used in that uh, passage. Megaphobos. They were very afraid of him. Mm. And so he's not, um, in a sense, he's he's saying to them, why do you have this little fear when you should have this big fear of who he is? Mm. Right? Very so he's there's a change of words of fear in that text. And so we want to pay attention to which word fear word the Bible is using and in which, again, what, what tense it's using it as. And so in a sense, he's reordering their fears from what's a small fear, the storm, to him, the big fear. Hmm. And we know that he says this in other places, to fear him who can throw your um, soul into hell, your body and yeah. soul into hell, instead of fearing what man does. So he's reordering our fears to rightly fear. And when we fear the big fear that we should, it makes other fears recede. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And we have less fear of man. So that's why he's saying when he reorders our fears, he reorders our loves, he reorders our joys, he reorders what we grieve over. The Bible is filled with this where it's reordering our response to things. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, one of the things I, I thought was I read through the book was this idea of uh, fragile faith. And what does an anti-fragile faith look like, act like, appear? What does it demonstrate? Uh, yeah, would you share some with us about that? What does an anti-fragile faith look like and the importance for that for a global worker? And honestly, for not just a global worker, wherever you're at in the world, uh, having an yeah. anti-fragile faith. Yes. Well, this actually comes from the guy that wrote the book about black swans and uncertainty. So it's from a completely um, secular business type book, Nassim Taleb. And um, I think he he actually might, I think he's Lebanese and in the Christian uh, group there. That's what I picked up from reading. Okay. But he talks about anti-fragility as opposed to resiliency. So this is something for member care people to consider. And I'm still kind of um, meditating on this. He 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 makes a difference between resilient. Well, and we're applying it to faith here. So I'm making right. the application to faith. So resilient faith is when we endure something hard, a trauma, and we bounce back, like without negative effects on us. We keep going, and I would say we keep going with joy and peace, right? But taking his concept of an anti-fragile system, it's something that's the opposite of fragility. He's saying it's not not broken or crushed in adversity. It doesn't just endure resiliency, but it actually comes back stronger than it was before. Hmm. And it does so, anti-fragile faith does this even when it cannot discern the reason or meaning behind why God has led us through this, right? And so we're still suffering, but actually our faith in him is stronger mm. than it mm. was before, even mm. when we don't know why what's happening. We, we still feel like we're in the darkness yeah. with God spiritually. And so I think we can push people beyond resiliency to anti-fragility. And that's something we're thinking about. 
And so you're you're thinking about it. So can you go a little bit deeper? What are you thinking about when it comes to this anti-fragility? Yeah, I would think it is the type of faith that is not shaken no matter what, and it clings even more tightly to God. And so there's this word in the verses where it's repeating the Shema in Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. There's a phrase that, that goes right after that. And I'm using Joshua 22 as, as an example, but this verse is found several times in Deuteronomy. And I believe in Exodus as well. It's this word to cling to him. Okay. It's Davak, D-A-V-A-Q in the English transliteration. Davak is God is never the subject of this verb. Only humans are. And it means you're going to stick to God like a clump of dirt that can't, those mud bricks that we yeah. see in Africa and Central Asia, you're not going to go away from him no matter what. And you're sticking even more closely, even when you can't tell what's going on and why. Hmm. That is anti-fragile faith that won't stop no matter what. And that would be what Job demonstrated in the latter half of of the book. It, it's a faith that loves God, even when it doesn't seem like he's giving us anything in return. That would be anti-fragile faith. It is not a faith that quits, no matter mm. what hell throws at it. Mm. And your idea, you're saying that not understanding. I think that's it's resiliency sometimes maybe would be you know, that you were resilient because you found meaning in it. You've, you've come to some understanding, but when you differentiate that idea, I just, I don't understand, but I'm becoming stronger through that. Is that something you've seen over the years, um, serving overseas, trying to understand the meaning behind everything? And maybe is that, is that a I do a lot of our work. We are trying to help people see what the meaning would be because we know that that will give them more resiliency. Yeah. But I think to be able to say, no matter what, even when I can't see it, I can't, it doesn't feel like I can hear him or that he hears me. Yeah. I I'm not going to go into faith crisis. I am going to keep following him. Yeah. And I think that's hard to see. I don't yeah. know. I don't know if we have a lot of examples of that. But because so many of us are called to just live quiet lives where we're not heralded by the church, sure. I think there's probably more examples of that out there than we realize. Yeah. And usually people like this are very humble. Yeah. So, yeah. Good word. Good I want to be anti-fragile. Oh, for sure. And I, I think that's why it made it onto my question list. And so I know, <laughs> you know, I, I start off with like 20 questions and try to whittle it down, whittle it down. But it was something that... That um, honestly, I don't think I had seen anywhere else as far as somebody applying it to faith and the importance yeah. of of where we're at. And yeah, and yeah, the where we're at in the world today and uh, some of our the areas we can we can grow in it. You talk about crisis versus non-crisis cultures. Um, can you share just some importances of understanding that and difference between a crisis and non-crisis culture? And um, how can we prepare, say we're, we're from a non-crisis culture, we're going to a crisis and vice versa. How can we prepare for that? Yeah. Well, I learned this from Lingenfelter and Meyer's book, which many people have to read before they go overseas. Um, and he is the one that talked about some cultures are crisis cultures and some are non-crisis cultures. This might overlap quite well with Roland Muller's book, Shame and Honor and Shame. But I would say all Western cultures are crisis cultures. We all are required to have crisis management plans. We prepare for problems before they arise. And we come from a, a worldview mindset that we are going to try to control and tame even chaos, right? 
Hmm. The non-crisis cultures do not prepare ahead of time and they just deal with the chaos when it comes. And so he yeah. uses an example of preparing for a tsunami. I believe it was in Japan. Japan. Um, and so this is the thing is if we are on an international team or we're working with people in their own culture and we're the non, we are the crisis people working with a non-crisis culture, it's a point of communication and working it out as brothers and sisters, what is wise and what would be a waste of time, right? Yeah. And so it's not a point of conflict. And I don't even think, and I think he's, Lingenfelter and Meyer saying this, is doesn't, we're not better than them if we're preparing because we might be doing all this energy and then the thing never happens. So was that a good steward um, investment, stewardship of kingdom resources, time, money, energy? Yeah. I just think it's worthwhile to ask the question and yeah. to work it out together with our brothers and sisters when we're, you know, teaming together, or we're in community together, um, that one isn't necessarily better than another, but maybe some preparation would be helpful. But then, of course, some of us are required by law to do certain things and by insurance requirements. Yeah. Oh. Well, the, the title of this podcast is Clarity. And so that is probably, <laughs> I would be on the side of the people that like to have a plan. And uh, yeah. and so that is understandable. Uh, I do understand that, you know, you do spend a lot of energy and time um, developing plans and we call them pathways that hopefully you never use. That's what I say. Right. It's not like you develop something that you hope a lot of people use. We were walking through having a um, uh, child safety uh, number that people could call. That's not, some, that's not something that when it was in development, we said, we hope a lot of people use this. Um, Right. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's something in place. I value your encouragement for us to have the conversation um, because I think if we can have conversations around this and like you said, not um, qualified, say, well, this one's better than the other. But if we can grow towards understanding, I think that's the importance mm -hmm. um, and the intentionality behind it, having the conversations. And um, that's why it made it to my question list for this one. Just yeah. the idea that. Yeah we can have conversations rather than waiting till we are in a crisis and being frustrated with each other, how right. people react and respond um, as we are. I do think the, the communities that at least that we're serving in, there are moving more towards multicultural um, teams, which is valuable. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. At the same time, I think sometimes we think we're have a multicultural team where everybody's going to act like an American and that's really not what we're getting to, right? You know, what I mean, nope. and having conversations like this one help us realize there are a lot of point of views. I've had I've had Sherwood on the on the podcast several times. He's been a blessing, and uh, we've learned a lot from him, and uh, yeah. really, really appreciate him. So, yeah. One of the one of the second to last question baseline. Um, you yeah. talk about the importance of establishing a baseline. Can you share a little bit about what you mean by baseline and and the importance of doing that? Yeah, I think I was deeply impacted by some of the the top people in the world who deal with violence. And they're like, they say violence is never random. It is always predictable. And we know hmm. from the Bible that what is in a man's heart is what will come out. And so they're saying you can predict, you can see the patterns of somebody preparing to do violence. And so as workers, it's imperative that when we get to a new location, we find out what that baseline is, whatever the risk level is. So Afghanistan is at a certain baseline that's far different from, let's pick a South American country like Ecuador, all right? And so there's going to be different baselines, but we need to know what the baseline is. And from a shrewdness perspective, if we see three anomalies in short order, 
it means the baseline has changed and we need to respond differently somehow. And so that some of those skills of how to respond are in facing fear, but also I list the, the couple of two really good books to, to read. And once we know the baseline, then we know how we can interact with the people, but we also want to evaluate how does my presence as the foreigner impact the locals baseline. And wow. you mentioned that in your, did you say, was it Madagascar? Yeah. Yep. That they asked you to leave because you guys as foreigners were impacting the locals. And that, I just love that because that's the community of the family of God in community, making a decision together to lower the risk level, to change the baseline by having the foreigners leave. That's huge. That's what we want. We want God's people working together for his kingdom. Yeah. Um, and it's, but it, it, I think it goes back to that sheep, sheep among sheep and sheep among wolves. Cause you never think that, you know, and, and probably it is your American mindset. You think, Hey, I'm here to help. And never would I actually increase the risk or would I increase problems? You think, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make it better, but it's conversations like that to recognize yeah. that actually um, I'm putting other people in danger by my presence and um yeah and yeah anyway I've, I've done a lot of talking i won't do that um last question i have for you well i got i'm gonna ask you if you have anything else i should have asked you but my last question before i ask that um duty of care when someone yep. says hey uh, i'm 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 not gonna leave uh, my organization is saying i should i should we should leave this is a the situation they do not do it can you just talk about what the duty of care is around something like that and and um, just some guidance or or your thoughts yeah yeah and so this is one of the this is one of the hardest questions and i know i don't have enough time to verbally give the full answer here so Go read on. the book and you will not agree with everything i say anyways which is fine the point is to have the conversation i um would say first off these are th this is a this is a um, not a problem to solve. It is a tension to manage because you have three values in tension here when a staff person doesn't want to leave. You have calling, you have safety, and you have the risk that's there, right? Yeah. So here's the deal. I would implore field workers to obey their leaders when the leadership asks them to leave. Hmm. I will implore for obedience, Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. And what field workers forget is the leaders are both legally and morally responsible and the board is responsible. And there's people back home that are asking hard questions. And sometimes these things hit the global media. So your decision to stay impacts far more than just you and what you think is your calling when that you think is in, is in conflict with the organizational calling, which is to evacuate their people, hmm. right? So here's the, but to answer your question, what does the organization do when the staff person refuses? They still refuse to evacuate even when they have been told to do so. So this is difficult. There is a long list of different questions and things that leaders do, but Minimally, the staff person and the spouse, if there's a spouse involved, need to have what's called informed consent. They need to make sure they understand fully what the risks and dangers are. Yeah. And then sometimes organizations will ask that person to sign a legal waiver that say the organization is not legally responsible for that person since the organization asked them to leave. True. Right. Yeah. 
of course we can discuss if that legal form will be held up in a yeah. court of law. Yeah. But we also want to keep family members back in the passport country from suing the organization and sure. bringing down the entire ship of the organization, yeah. whatever their work is. Yeah. Um, and so I really, I really want workers to obey their leaders, even if they think the leaders are wrong. Yeah. There's blessing and obedience. Hmm. Um, but when an organization is in that hard spot, they have to do a few legal forms, some assessing of that themselves and that person um, and do the best they can. So there's some guides in there for that. Yeah. But it is a very difficult, complicated situation when that yeah. happens. And that happens frequently. Yeah. And I appreciate you just addressing it. Like you said, we can't cover it all there. That's what you wrote a book for. So we can't cover the whole book. And we'll put links to the book in the show notes. Anna, is there a question you think, Aaron, you you narrowed down your list and you should have asked this one that I didn't ask or something you think that would have been vital for me to ask you? I, I mean, I think you really covered a lot of it. And I had pulled things from actually all parts of the book in my own preparation. I think what I really want people to hear is that the Lord is far more gracious than the church often is hmm. in responding to us in our fear. He is far more gracious and gentle. I do not think he was using a rebuking tone with the disciples. Um, I, I think his tone was gentle. It's like, why are you having this, this timid fear? And he was reordering that fear. And I think he does that for us today because he understands that things are scary out there and it's not a lack of faith. It's bring our fear to him and he will help us reorder it and reorient our spiritual eyes on him and help us through that hard thing. Yeah. And so that's, that's my heart for workers that they would feel the gentle mercy and grace of our Lord hmm. as they continue to move into danger or as they might feel is calling to move out of danger. That yeah. I didn't say that mature courage is also moving out of danger when we're being called to, because that's yeah. called obedient faithfulness. And that's what he's asking us to do is to obey him. Yeah. So that's what I, that's what I, the main message I want people to get. Good word. Good word. Will you pray for us today? Yes, I will. Thank you. Aaron, it's been such an honor to be with you and to be asked these hard questions. <laughs> oh, and yeah, I couldn't do justice to all of them, but. Let me just pray for those listening to this podcast. Lord, you know, there's some people listening um, when they hear this, that they're, they're in hard, dangerous places. They are having fear. Lord, would you just help people to be able to honestly and authentically face their fear? And then in that, they will experience your grace and your gentle mercy, but also your, your, your help to have courage. We know that your right hand is still on your throne. You are there and nothing takes you by surprise and that you give courage as we ask for it in that moment, Lord. And would you just, would your saints, would your children experience your faithfulness once again today when they hear this podcast of you giving courage and the strength to go forward and make another step in the place where they are serving and pushing into the darkness with your light, Lord. That's what we long for. And that's what we want. We want to see your kingdom come everywhere on this earth. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.